The Chronic Illness Therapist podcast is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learned here and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. This podcast is meant for educational purposes only. For specific questions related to your unique circumstances, please contact a licensed medical professional in your state of residence. Margaret Prendergrass is a licensed therapist and certified grief counselor located in Roswell, Georgia. Prior to becoming a therapist, she worked in medical social work for over a decade. She became the person that doctors sent in to talk to patients and their families after a challenging or terminal diagnosis. Modern medicine can provide some incredible treatment, but it still struggles when it comes to talking about challenging thoughts and feelings. Margaret now helps people in her private practice to work through the difficult emotions that inevitably arise through terminal medical diagnoses, both for the individual with the diagnosis and their family members. So thank you so much for being here. Why don't we start off by you kind of telling people where you work and who you work with and just anything that feels relevant about yourself? Yeah. My name is Margaret Pendergrass. I'm an LCSW and a certified grief counselor. And I work in uh, Roswell, Georgia. I also see a lot of clients online, virtually. And I specialize in griefs and loss, as well as chronic illness and um, caregiver fatigue. I've been working in the medical field for a very long time uh, as a medical social worker. So I have a lot of experience and background in that area, helping people kind of navigate their diagnoses and their changes in life. Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about caregiver fatigue. Um, what are what are some of the first things that come? Do you do you work with that a lot in private practice or with that more so? Oh, no, yeah. An agent? yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of caregiver fatigue. Yeah. Um, what do you feel like is the most important thing that you work on with clients who are experiencing caregiver fatigue? Yeah, and this may sound um, obvious to those of us that aren't being an active caregiver, but it's so not obvious in the moment. But that, you know, that need to take care of yourself to have the ability to take care of others is, I mean, and it's one of those things that's the first thing we let go of when we're stressed or anxious is like, well, I'll put myself last. I'll deal with myself later, but that really catches up to us. And you can see that if you're, you know, if you're starting to get irritable when you don't want to be, you know, you can know that, okay, there's something in there that's, that's missing that I'm a need for me that I'm not meeting. Um, and I will actually be a better caregiver. If I meet that need, if I meet my own needs, if I take care of myself, I will show up better. I will be more present. I will be less irritable. Um, and I will have more energy. Yeah. Do you have some examples, maybe things you see over and over again of like the typical ways that people start to stop taking care of themselves, stop taking care of themselves? Yeah. I would say some of the big ones are um, completely stopping any kind of health, any of your health activities that you would normally do. So if you've let go of exercise, if you're eating only takeout, you know, that's so 
one thing I see so frequently with caregivers is they will start to get sick because they have been putting off their own health issues, even basic stuff like diet and nutrition and movement uh, for so long to be a caregiver that then they become ill themselves. And that's a pattern that I've seen again and again. And do you bring in community a lot? Like how do you, what is kind of your go-to way to kind of help people like, yeah, increase their level of self-care? Because I know self-care is, you know, when again, if you're taking, if all of your resources are going into taking care of someone else, um, it's kind of hard to give resources to you, right? Do you encourage, what does that look like, that kind of conversation? Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of really great community resources out there that I've kind of discovered over the years. A lot of them are kind of disease specific. Um, so for example, like caregivers of those that have dementia. Um, so there's things like support groups and online platforms that you can use to talk to other caregivers going through something similar. Um, and then one of kind of the main tools that I use in session is, and I know this is something you've talked about before on your podcast, is bringing in the client's values. So if you want to have that value of caring, for example, you know, I can see that every day in how you are taking care of your loved one, but how are you showing that value of caring to yourself? Um, and so getting clear on those and then making sure that they're applying those to themselves and not just other people. The first thing that comes to my mind when you start talking about that is kind of an inability to be able to receive. Like sometimes, well, a lot of times, you know, we live in a country that isn't really big on, um, you know, because community requires to really have like a strong community. I think it requires being vulnerable and like sharing and all of these things, but we're not really big on that in this country. So, um, no, no you know, that, that, this, it's like uh, pressure not to ask for help. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's really become kind of normalized. And so. There's this like sense that if I just work harder, I can do it all um, when that's not necessarily the case. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we could probably talk all all episode about that. But um, yeah, the if I just work harder, then, you know, I can handle it all. And that's such a pervasive lie. I think I even fall. I fall. I, like I fall to that, too. Yeah. Um, it takes yeah, like a two. I think it's so human to fall for <laughs> I think it's American human. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in other countries, it, like, it's not, you know, you're, you're expected to ask your family for help. And now, granted, like, family can come with all types of, you know, um, invisible strings attached and kind of like some toxic stuff, negative stuff that we don't want to deal with. Um, but that kind of let, probably leads into a whole other conversation around boundaries and healthy communication and things like that. But to stay on topic around caregiver fatigue, so there are, so you said there's like community resources around like specific diseases. So I'm, I'm assuming like support groups and stuff like that. Is that what it is or is there also other things? Yes. So there's support groups um, and there's a lot of really great ones online now, which is fantastic. Um, but there's also a lot of kind of more concrete resources too, um, like financial resources. Uh, resources for getting some help at home. Um, you know, something that I've been doing my whole career is learning what those are and helping people access them. 
because there's a lot out there that people just truly have never heard of. There's not a, a good way to find out about them and there's not a good way to know what you're eligible for. So I think a lot of my work is also just letting people know this is what your insurance covers. This is where you can get help if you need it. And sometimes that's also letting them know where, where there is no help available. Can you maybe give some examples of what that could look like? Yeah, yeah. So for example, you know, I'll use the example of dementia because I work with a lot of people um, that are caregivers of people with dementia. And so, you know, one of the big things there is kind of that sense of respite, right? There are going to be times where you need to be out of the house for whatever reason, for completely normal human reasons. And that's acceptable and okay. And how can you make that as stress-free as possible? So if you cannot leave your loved one, what will your insurance or his insurance cover that can come in and help for even a couple hours a week? Um, and so kind of looking at both in-home and out-of-home options for just, again, I think that goes right back to what we were saying about the caregivers not taking time for themselves. Um, and those resources really, that helps them. It helps them say, okay, I, I can because I have this help. Um, so there's a lot of that out yeah. there that people don't know about. And then is that like disease dependent? Like I would imagine dementia would be a one that insurance would be more likely to have some kind of paid care for, right? Is or yeah. So is it disease dependent? So some of it is disease dependent, but a lot more of it is insurance dependent and um, also dependent on need. So depending on what you know a, a doctor says is the need. Um, we'll kind of determine what insurance we'll pay for and then what options become available. And then one more technical question, totally okay if you don't know, but like, is it dependent on the caregiver's need or like the caregiver obviously needs that time away regardless, right? So whose insurance is paying for this? And yeah, I mean, you may not know all that. You're, I know you're not an insurance expert, but <laughs> no, that's okay. I, like I said, I've been doing this for so long now. It's really second day nature to me. So typically it's going to be the insurance of the person um, that is receiving care. So for example, the person that has dementia, it's typically their insurance. Um, and again, what is covered varies greatly depending on what a doctor will write down as needed. A lot of that depends on what a doctor says. And so some doctors understand that people need more breaks. Some people, some doctors don't. And uh, but it really depends on what a doctor thinks is the need. Got it. Yeah. And is this something that a patient advocate would help with? Um, or how would people kind of, how would people know, like, I guess, do you have any tips for calling their insurance? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely like um, insurance case managers are a good resource. And they typically already call when there's a chronic illness diagnosis, they're going to call and offer. Um, and they may have access to some programs uh, that otherwise you wouldn't have access to through your insurance. But kind of the, I mean, the biggest thing to know about that is just that there's not an easy way to find out what those benefits are, even if you call. Um, like I said, even like two people that both have Medicare, um, if one has an advantage plan and another one has a Medicare with a supplement, those are going to look completely different as far as what they cover and what processes would look like. Uh, so it's so highly individualized. It can take a lot of time and effort to figure out 
what your insurance actually looks like and will come for you. Yeah, that's really hard, right? Because you're already so swamped. Yeah. So is there anything else around that that feels important? Maybe something that like, you know, comes up a lot with clients or in your work um, that most would surprise most people about um, how they can take care of themselves. Like, for example, the fact that insurance may kind of pay for some help uh, so that you could take care of yourself is a surprising fact to me. Are there any other surprising facts that people find really helpful? Um, you know, it's funny that you said that was surprising to you because I feel like I hear so much the opposite of people kind of expecting their insurance to show up for them and then be disappointed when it when it doesn't. Um, one of the other big things um, that I think is a really important topic for, you know, people with, with chronic illness and for their caregivers for both is that kind of concept of um, like shadow loss, um, which was come up with by um, a woman in Cole Impurity. And so it's, it's kind of like, you know, loss, like talking about creation loss. Um, but a shadow loss is when there's a loss in life instead of a loss of life. So the big key difference there is the future you kind of saw for yourself is taken away. And our brains, they don't grieve that any differently than they do if someone died. You know, our brains grieve the same. Um, biggest difference is when someone dies, we get a lot of support, right? People rally around us. But when we get a life-changing diagnosis, so our loved one gets a life-changing diagnosis, if they get diagnosed with dementia and suddenly we we don't know that they're going to be all fully present for the rest of our years together. All of those losses, we don't have a good vocabulary for. Uh, so shadow loss is kind of a term that I love to bring up with people and acknowledge that you might mourn these losses completely the same as if someone had died. You know, you will have all of the stages of grief. You will have all of the sensations. All of it is so normal. It's just not really talked about as grief that's a really important point and it makes me think of there there's something that i know i've heard um sometimes with uh older parents who are you know especially dementia or just really really hard um diagnoses and they'll say i feel like a monster for saying this but i just wish that it was over i'm curious how you with clients around that and I'm sure that that comes up for you too. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is, is acceptance, right? That we're going to have thoughts like that because it is work and really normalizing for people. Um, because you're right, people, they jump straight to, to guilt um, or negative self-talk about having those thoughts and everyone has them. They're so normal and human and being a caregiver is exhausting. Being sick is exhausting. So that kind of frustration and anger that can come out too uh, is just so normal. It makes me think too that this concept of shadow loss, you know, our brains are always looking for ways to get rid of cognitive dissonance. So if it feels like you have a loss, but the person is right in front of you, mm -hmm. you would imagine your brain is like trying to give you thoughts that again, make sense of the situation. So I feel like they're, they're gone, but they're not. And so therefore my brain says, I wish they would they were which obviously may not be true but also that's just that's just one part of it i think a much bigger part of it is probably just how exhausting it is yeah. to be sick and to be a caregiver um with very little support 
I think the more support you have, you know, the better, the better it's going to be to be able to handle and kind of accept the hardship. Yeah, definitely. I think another big example that jumps to mind from my, my career is that working like in, with dialysis patients, I worked in dialysis for a very long time. And so with dialysis, you know, you have to go into a clinic you know, there's home dialysis, but the majority of people go into a clinic three times a week for, you know, four hours. And that is such a loss of the life that they wanted, the schedule that they wanted, the person they thought they would be. Uh, and that is such a big shadow loss of all of these kind of expectations and roles. But again, and at the end of the day, there's, there's not, um, people don't rally around that in the same way because we don't have the vocabulary to say, this is, this is a loss to me. This is an enormous loss to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's such a common response in our culture to just when things are hard, it's like, okay, we'll like just keep pushing through. And I feel like it's kind of a scapegoat for people to not have to give it like help. I feel like if I say it goes to, to this concept of working hard and kind of you know, if I just work hard, then I'm going to be, you're going to be able to do it if you just keep working hard. And therefore, I don't have to actually do anything to come in and, and aid in that. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of an, a down down look, but I feel like it's a common thing that happens. I see it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a common thing that people will come in and, and talk about is sometimes the things that have been said to them by others, people that really care. Um but again, we don't have good language around that. And so, you know, so people say it'll get better. People say, you know, you're stronger than this or uh, the famous quote, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I mean, all of that. People say these things out of a place of anger. But to you, they can feel so insensitive uh, uh, because they're not really understanding where you're coming from. Yeah. And like a much better response would be, how can I help? What can I do? Yeah. Can I keep there? Can I come clean your bathroom? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one other thing about that is that sometimes you, it's also exhausting to be asked what you need all the time. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that kind of can become its own burden after a, like a loss, for example, like when I'm working with someone that's lost a loved one. The one thing that I hear again and again is I'm so tired of people asking me how they can help because that's a burden on me to come up with ways for them to help. Um, yeah. And so just doing the little things, um, coming over and cleaning um, without asking, just saying, this is what I want to do for you. Of course, that really depends yeah. on your relationship with the person and all of that. Um, but I know some people just, just get so tired of hearing, how can I help? Um, and then having the ball placed back in their court to come up with something for someone to do. Yeah, because you don't really know. They're at, they're asking you, what can I do? But you don't really know what they're actually willing to do. So then it puts only the burden of you to figure out the task, but also to figure out if this is going to be, if it's going to cause conflict or tension that I just asked you to do this thing that you weren't willing to do. So there's a lot there. And it also just made me think like back to the importance of community. When you're around people and like, have a tight-knit community around you day in, day out, week after week after week, people know you, right? So they might know a little bit better of what you want and you need. But if you kind of live this solitary life and you just have these friends that maybe you just go to lunch with every now and then, they're going to have no idea like 
what your household needs are, what your personal emotional needs are. Like it really does come down to, and this is where kind of act comes in, acceptance and commitment therapy and building value, you know, living a life by your values. Like if you value community and relationships, then we want to work on that despite like pre-illness. We we want to be always working towards building community pre-illness, during, post, like we are living life by our values despite what's happening in our lives. Um, I know for me, community is a big value. So it's like, that's always the goal. Like, how do I build, how do I build more meaningful connections, like deep connections um, so that I can give and take equally reciprocally and my life, that's kind of how I envision my life feeling good 20 years from now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the values is such a big, that's such a big part of it. Yeah. What are so, you know, you mentioned kind of not having the language around when life changes, you know, the shadow loss, when life changes into something you you weren't expecting. Are there other language, any other words you kind of teach clients that aren't in our common vernacular? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I actually just did a whole series of posts on Instagram about different words that both other cultures have and that we have to sort of get into that. Um, so there's a whole, a whole bunch. Uh, you know, one that I talk about a lot with people is the concept of a awake mare. So like a nightmare, uh, but upon waking. And that's really normal when you've lost something, there's someone or some part of yourself because you, a lot of times that comes up in your dreams. So you'll dream that the person is, is back. You'll dream that they're still there and then you wake up. And sometimes that waking up is, that's the scarier part in the dream. Uh, and so that's just one example. You know, I think another one that's really great to know about is the term of existential grief. Um, because so many times we feel like our grief has to be centered at one thing, right? It's this, it's this diagnosis, it's this person, this is why I'm grieving. And sometimes we just leave. Sometimes things just make us upset. Life didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. One of our values isn't being met. And so just the term that you can really be grieving without necessarily being able to point to this is why. And I see that come up a lot with people where they'll really be actively grieving, um, but they kind of don't accept that in themselves because, again, we don't have, we don't have the language to, to really talk about grief when it's not a death. Do you find that kind of just offering the language and these these words um, helps people then kind of reach out for support? Or what do people tend to do with these words after they learn them? Yeah, so I think just knowing that there's some terms that kind of resonate with what they're feeling is really empowering to people. I mean, the hope would be eventually terms like like shadow loss would become commonplace. So that you could talk to people about it easier. Um, you know, one that's one thing I feel like people struggle with a lot is even if they have the language, if no one else around them does, then they still feel very isolated. Um, so eventually, you know, the kind of goal would be society in general can recognize that so much grief happens at other times in life that are both, you know, not just death. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of opening up 
the conversation and um, I can't remember where I heard this, but there's a concept of just our, our society is very grief phobic. So yeah, we don't have big conversations because we just don't know what to do with them. Again, I think the common like fallback conversation is like, oh, you'll, you'll get through it or like, you'll figure it out or like, this is a blessing in disguise or that, um, which again, I think just takes the onus off of the person listening to hold any grief and sadness with you because they don't know how to do it either because they were never taught either. So it's a tricky, yeah, it's a tricky thing we're navigating. Um, I do think that our society is becoming more, I think with social media, like a lot, a lot of people are posting about grief and loss and educating, like providing psychoeducation online. And I think that that's helping a lot um, in a lot of ways. It's just giving us this language that you're talking about so that at least when we want to try to start talking about it, it's not completely foreign. I mean, it might still be depending on, you know, who you follow on social media and who your family follows, but I do think it is becoming less taboo to kind of talk about some of these things. Yeah, I really, I hope so. You know, death is, apart from being born, it's one of those like universal experiences um, that we really, really should talk about more. Um, we should talk about all the time. I do a lot of work with like existential psychotherapy. And a big part of that is talking about those kind of big, scary things we try not to think about, including death. Uh, but again, it's so human that we need to talk about it. What happens then is people, you know, I've also worked with a lot of people kind of around the end of life um, and kind of that's the first time they've ever really talked about their death is when it's imminently coming and all of the stuff that comes up around that. Um, and again, that, that can't hurt you. That's kind of going back to some of that um, act techniques around sitting with a little bit of being uncomfortable, right? It's not an easy thing to, to say to yourself, one day I'm... I'm going to die, but it is really an important part of a human life to get to, can I live by my values so that that's a less scary idea? And there's a lot of science and studies that back up that talking about death makes us more intentional people, makes us kinder people, <laughs> makes us more creative people um, because it kind of taps us into what we really want underneath all the other stuff that we're trying to get done. Yeah. Do you ever use the funeral exercise, the acceptance and commitment therapy funeral oh. exercise? Yes, I, I use that. I think at almost every initial session because I find it so powerful. And, you know, I think I hear all the time people will say, I've never thought about that. Um, but it's one of those things. It's we, we spend so much time looking backwards, you know, thinking about all these things we regret that it's so much harder to think forward and think, okay, now who do I want to be? What values do I want to have? So that there's no regret in the future. Yeah. Like again, people even talking about death a lot of times, like when, when I'll start with someone new, if I even like bring it up, they'll be like, no, I can't. It's too scary. It's too, it's too much. I can't think about it. I've been trying actively not to think about it my whole life. Um, and so it's one of those things you definitely have to do baby steps on depending on your your comfort level yeah i'm wondering if you'd be open to kind of walking through that exercise the funeral exercise for listeners and totally okay if you don't want to do that yeah no no i it's great it's one of my absolute favorites um and again that's that's why i use it in almost every initial session 
because it gets at so many things that um, subtly. So then the exercise is basically uh, looking at you know, you're at your funeral. You have this like first person view of your funeral. You can see your loved ones there. You know, what are the things that you want them to say about you at your funeral? Um, again, like I said, most people haven't necessarily thought about that. But when you do, when you sit down and think, these are what I want them to say, what comes up is your values. And what comes up a lot is sometimes the, the way that you're not necessarily living in alignment with those two. Uh, because if we do sometimes get so caught up in the day-to-day that it, it can feel like life is infinite, um, but it's not. <laughs> it, it does have an end. And there's not always more and more and more time that we can keep postponing the person we really want to be. Yeah, it really prioritizes. And of course, um, you know, sometimes uh, this exercise can actually, it can kind of put you into a really intense existential crisis because <laughs> you're like, oh, wait, like I'm, I'm nowhere near like this person that I wanted to be. And depending on how much time you feel like you have less, whether it's illness related or age related. That can be a really hard thing to grapple with. Um, I know for me, when that happens, I usually kind of just, we we backtrack a bit off the exercise and start to talk a little bit, bring some resourcing in. And, and then I do eventually go back into that exercise. I still think it's so important. Um, how do you kind of handle that when when clients maybe become flooded by that exercise? Yeah, yeah, definitely grounding and kind of coming back to the present. Um, you know, I think, it's always important to make sure that there's some kind of coping mechanism people have, such as deep breathing or the five three two one, something that they already kind of know and are familiar with. Um, but at the same time, I think there's you know a lot of power in noticing what's coming up in that moment. Like notice what feelings are coming up, and instead of looking at them as these big scary feelings, looking at them as what information is this giving you about what really matters. And about who you are. And that's so critical to understanding, you know, yourself and, and what you really want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important we don't like shy away from those hard feelings um, and kind of run away from them. But yeah, if your brain is flooded and you just can't think of kind of an answer and, and it's way too big and scary, um, then we kind of yeah, we kind of start to talk about some of the things that that are going right or have gone right in your life. And then that also can lead us kind of back to your values. And then going back, I think it's important to always go back to that exercise if we've gone away from it to let them know those big, scary feelings aren't so big and scary. One, when you know I'm not scared to go back there with you. And then two, when we've kind of resourced you either with those grounding techniques or some of the, um, just by talking about things that genuinely make you feel better that kind of cognitive being in conversation alone can kind of bring some of your your um, intense emotions down for sure. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that too is, is, you know, I am not immune from that either. And that's one of my favorite things about kind of the existential psychotherapy approach is that, you know, the therapist isn't seen as a big expert sitting, sitting you know, and weighing down on everyone else. You know, I am going to die. Um, I am facing the exact same kind of existential crisis as every other human being on the planet. And so, you know, from that approach, we're both in a conversation together of figuring out 
what do we do with this terrifying reality? How do we sit with the anxiety of that? And what things can we change so that it's a little bit less scary? Definitely. And um, I wanted to add, because we have a lot of therapists that listen to this as well. And one of the other things that I do um, with the funeral exercise is I'll kind of bring in like, not only like, what are people saying about you, but one, like who's there? Um, and what kind of food is there? Like, what are people eating? And how does it smell? And what do you see? We kind of slow this down in session, but really just bringing in some of that somatic experience in so that if there's fear, there's also like, also a felt sense of comfort with your favorite food and kind of seeing this, like the, some the smiles on people's faces when they're remembering happy things about you, the good things about you that you want to be remembered for. And we really can take like a good chunk of session. The exercise can be really, really short and it can kind of be, you know, or it can be like very much drawn out and a really important um, exercise to get people just thinking about things that we don't normally like to think about. Yeah. In a way that's not like debilitatingly scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a great thing to revisit, you know, when you're drawing to a close with a client as well. Um, it's kind of to come back full circle and be like, okay, you know, are you closer to that person that you want to be now um, than you were, let's say, when we started? And is this something that you feel comfortable revisiting on your own going forward as a check-in with yourself uh, to make sure that you are living the way that you want to live? Yeah, yeah. And um, even just, that's a good point too. Sometimes clients at the, be in the beginning really can't answer the question in my experience. So when that's the case, I might ask again like four weeks later. And it's really, and it's amazing for the client too to be like, wow, like I couldn't even fathom answering this question just four weeks ago. And now all of a sudden I'm able to picture and kind of get a better grasp of, of what I want to work on. And then, yeah, at the end too, how are we, how much more in alignment are you with the goals that we set from this exercise? Yeah. And I think one of the great things that I love about ACT and working with the values is you, you pick them up just in talking to people. I mean, I, now I pick them up everywhere, but in like a session with a client, I pick up them and then there's something that we kind of carry with us and are always checking in on. Because once you know those values and you kind of have that framework, there's so much power in revisiting those and seeing how much they actually do show up in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, there's a book um, called Values and Therapy. Have you read that one? It's by Jenna Lejeune. Yeah. Um, yeah, she talks, she calls it like sniffing out truffles. <laughs> and it's, I just think that's such a good metaphor. Like, you know, you're having this conversation and the client, like you might ask a client, like, what are your values? And they're like, I, I don't know. But then you start <laughs> having a conversation and like, oh, okay, so you felt really good when you were, you know, helping this person do this thing. And, you know, we just start to realize if we're kind of, if we're like, if we are the, truffle sniffing detective then we're able to kind of sniff that out and then bring it to clients and, and illuminate it for them and then they can kind of carry it with them yeah, themselves yeah yeah and I think that you know that's another similarity between acceptance and commitment theory therapy and existential therapy is that that focus on like meaning um finding your values finding that meaning the thing that gives you a sense of purpose um, I think that's something that they both carry through. And I think it's so, so important 
um, for us to really be clear on what we feel like is giving our lives meaning in the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. Which might go hand in hand with this next question, but I'm curious kind of how you help clients um, figure out how to keep their lives kind of feeling fresh and alive and motivated. Um, You know, yeah, it goes along with meaning for sure, but I would love to hear how else you kind of go into that with clients. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, having that framework um, is so important of this. This is my top priority. And so that is the lens through which I can make decisions. That's the lens through which I can view the world, decide what I want to do with my free time. Um, I think that's so important. One other part that I feel like is sometimes we ignore is what are the things that that you can let go of? We're really good at adding things to our to-do list. Like, oh, I should I should meditate and I should definitely do yoga and I should journal every night. We're really good at, at adding active things to our like list of things that we think will make us you know, feel better. What we're not so good at is what are the things that we can let go of? You know, do I need to have the cleanest house on the block? Maybe not. Maybe not at this time, not at this season in my life. Maybe again, I can revisit that later. But for now, it's something that I can maybe let go of. Um, and I think that's kind of a... Another part about living with a chronic illness is if it's hard to let something go, you know, whatever it was, even if it's just kind of the view, the person you thought you'd be, um, even losing that, again, that's a big shadow loss. Yeah, especially if you are the type of person that has kind of prided yourself all, all these years on kind of keeping your house clean, mm-hmm. um, if that's kind of a big value to you, um, letting it go may also feel like a loss of your identity and and your abilities, which is really hard. Um, but that's where we kind of process and and therapy. Like, what's the payoff for for letting this go? And and yeah, what is the the loss and the gain? Yeah, I think it's really important to realize that you can't do it all. Regard even if you don't have a chronic illness, even if you're not caring for someone, you just you cannot do it all. And so something has to give. Um, and I think so many times I work with clients that are, that want to do it all. And that's, again, I totally get that. I want to do it all. Um, but I have to also remind myself that there's limits, right? There's limits on my time and my energy. And I have to be really intentional about where those go or they might go somewhere that I'm not going to be happy with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, when that comes up in therapy, we process the grief around that and you're allowed to feel sad about that. Um, you're allowed to move through that grieving process of all of these different losses. It's not a matter of just like, well, let your house be dirty and don't worry about it because we have to prioritize other things. I promise it for people listening, it doesn't sound like that in therapy. <laughs> oh, totally um, not at all. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, yeah, we, and that's, I think that's another like grieving point around chronic illness and caregiving and and these things that are so hard is that we're constantly trying to figure out what's important and what's not important. Um, But I will say, I think this is a good way to look at it. Um, When you are used to kind of exploring your own values, when that's a practice that you engage in actively, um, having to kind of pivot isn't as hard. But if it's kind of the first time that you're looking at your values, looking at what you want to change, looking at things in this kind of light, 
then it's like one extra thing your brain is not comfortable with and it's it's trying to learn it's like it's another skill that's kind of it's a it's a you're in, in the skill building phase so it's still kind of fatiguing and hard to think about these things which is why therapy is so important to have somebody across from you who's able to kind of hold you during that process rather than kind of giving you a book and say like you know go read about the values and try to figure this out on your own and going back to community I think that that's a perfect example for how we look at everything else you know like here's the information now go do it and it's like no who can help you with this like we're not meant to we're not meant to do everything alone so yeah yeah definitely I think I love that idea of you know the therapist is on their own kind of journey too right we're all humans we're all dealing with these same kind of stresses and anxieties and you know I think so much happens when you just put into words what you're feeling um that you know so many times in therapy it's like they don't even need me there I'm just sitting there holding that space for them to come to their own realizations and make their own narrative make sense and I I absolutely love seeing when someone has those like aha moments of oh wait why did I never put those two together until now when I'm saying it out loud well, I would I would argue that the reason why is probably because we're not we're probably one of the few people people who are not saying like oh like you're gonna get past this like kind of all of the like silver lining stuff yeah um, yeah yeah when you're like this is something that I teach clients a lot too when we're talking about community is who is good at what in your life um, so like rather than relying on everybody and one person for everything it's important to kind of figure out how you can divvy up tasks or the emotional load things of that nature again that's kind of an um off it's kind of an uncomfortable like thought process because we are such a like nuclear family like we just it's like four person household and you don't live with your extended family and you know you just we're very like isolated in this country so then to think about like how big your community can be and, and who's in it and who can give you what can be really hard but Again, like your therapist is there to help you with what they're strong at. And what we're strong at is the process of figuring out what needs to change and how to make that change in a way that isn't so totally overwhelming. So you come to us for support with that. You go to other people for support with other things. So yeah, that's something that I, I help clients figure out what it looks like for them, like who's in their life and and not only who can help you, but what are your strengths and where are you giving back as well? Because we do know that research is really clear that when you are also an active participant, like in support groups or um, to your friends and family, you know, not over giving, not at the the risk of neglecting yourself. But when it's a reciprocal relationship and there's real give and take, which caveat um, for people listening, like give you you may need to be the one taking during a period of your life without giving much back at all but there will come a time again where you're able to give and and that's a really good healthy part of this journey yeah i think that um what you just said was really great about kind of that the therapist helping with that that kind of process and and how that is so individual for every single person that looks just completely different and so i think one of the most powerful things about you're working with a therapist is that regardless of them being an expert in whatever modality they use or whatever illness that that you're talking about the therapist becomes an expert in you and there's so much power in that to have someone that really 
knows knows you and that you can be that level of vulnerable with. Um, I think that's one of the things about therapy that, you know, isn't always talked about, but that can be really, really, really powerful. That's such a good point. Yeah, if you really struggle to figure out how to ask people for help, um, your therapist would be a really good person to be like, well, every week you come in and like your biggest stressor is that the bathroom didn't get cleaned again while you were doing all of these other things. So maybe that's what you need help with. And just having someone else say it out loud, being can yeah. sometimes give you the, the push and the confidence for you to be able to then say that out loud to people around you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's so much in that relationship that is important, but it is kind of a representation of other, other you know, relationships too. And so the ability to say, to practice some of that in therapy, if it's something that makes you super uncomfortable um, and to have someone be able to say, that's, that's an okay thing to say. That's completely normal. People ask for help. People give help. Um, you know, I think it's also a lot of times people really struggle with asking for help. Um, but are really good at giving it. And so, you know, one of the ways that I can sometimes frame that, that is, you know, asking someone for help can be also a, a gift to them um, because they get that satisfaction out of helping. They hate the feeling of powerlessness that they can't change the situation. You know, they, they may not have the vocabulary or know what to ask or know what to do, but you letting them help you is actually good for both of you not not it's not just you taking yeah and when you if you are a giver you know how, how good it feels to give so it's not out of the realm of possibility that there are other people around you who also enjoy giving yeah what else comes to mind around this um maybe like some of your favorite moments with clients what are some of the things that just keep you fresh in this work yeah i think you know, again, one of my favorite moments is is when clients look at their life in a different way. My favorite thing to hear is, that's a good question. <laughs> so I feel like there's so much power in the right question at the right time um, to just suddenly flip something that seemed so stuck and to get it unstuck. Um, so that's my favorite part with working with anyone is when, you know, when, you know, one of the millions in questions that you asked during the day. One of them is just the right one at the right time. Um, and it doesn't matter so much what the answer is. It just matters that the question was asked. Yeah, yeah. Curiosity is an antidote to feeling stuck. So when you ask that question and a client's like, that's a good question, you can just see them kind of like release the shackles of feeling stuck. And it's, it is like, that's my whole job as a therapist. So when that happens, it feels really beautiful. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Well, is there anything else that feels important for this conversation? Yeah, I feel like then we kind of touched on a lot of the big ones, but just again, that kind of reminder that there's so many different types of that grief. Um, you know, I think you touched on it a lot when you talked about kind of the isolation that we can face. Um, again, just the ways that that shows up are limitless and it's completely normal. I mean, as, as we said, like your brain can't differentiate between someone dying and some other type of loss. It just senses the loss. Um, and so if you are feeling that, it's so normal and so okay uh, to really let yourself just experience that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing today. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure. I think this is a really good intro to grief and chronic illness. So I really appreciate you. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need. And lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do if you found this episode helpful. And P.S. Clicking subscribe ensures you'll be here for the next episode. See you then.